Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church family. Trust you are doing well on this beautiful Sunday. Name is Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. Our heartbeat here is to help other people meet, know, and follow Jesus because we believe to our core that when you encounter him, it changes everything. Now this morning, we're going to take a jump out of our Acts series, and I want to share with you a lesson, something that God did in my life during the last four months when I was on sabbatical, and I believe that God wants me to share it with you as it means to challenge you and encourage you to take your next step in following Jesus. But before we do get into it this morning, I just feel pressed just to pray because quite frankly, I don't want this to be about my story. I don't want it to be about my words, but I want it to be about God's words because that's why we're here, is to hear from him and to be changed by him. So would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our guide, would be our teacher. Lord, you promised in your word that when the Spirit comes, it would convict of truth and righteousness and sin. And so, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would do the convicting. We ask that your spirit would do the building, do the revealing. And so, Lord, I ask that this morning you would have your way with us. May we be people who cling to you instead of running away from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite things to do as a dad is to have floor time with my kids absolutely love it. And now that Addie is getting older, Addie's my littlest, she's six, and one of the things that she loves to do is like clockwork every night. Daddy, wrestle? And I'm just like, okay. You know, she's like, dad, we always wrestle at night, to which is like, yeah, it's kind of true, but okay, we get it. So, so we would start to wrestle. Of course, she's totally a girl and it comes to wrestling. It's like, she'll come and slap me and smack me and push me. But then any moment I try to do anything back to her, she's like, no, no, daddy, stop. I'm like, man, you are such a girl. My son, he just still thinks he can beat me, you know, and I'm like, you know what, there, there's going to come a point, <laughs> like when he gets older and I continue to get older that he's going to beat me, but until then my pride wins and I have to let him know whenever we're done, well, I'll wrestle, I'll let him contend with me for a while, but there will come a moment where I will pin him down and I will make him confess, true story, who's stronger? <laughs> I have a problem, I know. And I won't even talk about my oldest because she's in her room and she'll get mad at me. So there it is. My pride gets in the way, but I love wrestling with my kids. I absolutely love it. I love the floor time. Even though there's going to be a struggle and even though there's going to be sweat and sometimes tears, which is caused by me, which I always say I'm sorry, there's intimacy. There's relational connectedness that happens in that moment, which is why we love to wrestle which is why they love to look forward to wrestling with me and quite frankly why I like to look forward to it. Even though sometimes there is pain to be involved, even though there is a struggle, the foundation underneath it is relationship. What if we saw God this way? Like what if we saw God wanting to wrestle with us this way? Instead of us seeing fighting with God as something that is tr drudgery or we start to think that God wants to wrestle with us and fight with us as a means to guilt us or to shame us. But what if we start to understand that wrestling with God is actually a means of growing in intimacy with him? You see, when the reality of the sabbatical, and now just as a disclaimer, I'm going to be rather vulnerable with you this morning. So I'm just going to ask, you don't judge me, which is totally fine if you do, but I already know if you're judging me, 
you do the same things as me. So we're okay. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. But you're like, every time I do that, it's like setting myself up really good. It's like, ooh, is he going to, like, what bad sin is he going to confess? None. Get over it. The reality of having a sabbatical is becoming a parent. I was like, truly, there was all sorts of emotions that were being stirred up inside of me. And I started to have all sorts of conflicting thoughts. Like I knew I needed the sabbatical. I knew I wanted the sabbatical. And quite frankly, at the same time, I didn't want it. I was terrified of it. Like, what does this mean? Like, what do you do for four months? And then as I started to wrestle with it a little bit more, I started to understand like why it terrifies me. Because it's like, I'm not going to have the convenience of work to distract me from issues that I know I need to confront. The preoccupation, right, where we self-entertain ourselves so that way we can kind of continue to sweep things under the rug and act like they're not really there. Or maybe they're not as bad as they are. As much as I wanted to go on a sabbatical, I didn't want to go on it because I knew, I knew I would have nothing to distract me. I knew I would have nothing really, you know, like work to use as an excuse as to why I'm so tired and why I need to veg out when I get home. And I know you understand this. Like we all have those issues in our lives that we need to give attention to, like circumstances that we need to confront and look in the face. Like we have those issues that we know that like stir up anxiety in the background that we're just constantly trying to silence. Something isn't working right. Some kind of conflict shows up. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a finance thing. I don't know. But the more we think about it, what we actually discover is that it's actually really an identity issue. There's something unsettled inside of us of where we find value and worth, where we find meaning and purpose in our life. The things that define us or we allow to define us. And maybe it's just simply being distracted from the misplaced uh, priorities that we should be having in our relationships. Maybe if you're married, it's with your spouse. Or if you're a parent, it's with your kids. And you know there's issues. You know you need to spend time, but you're just trying to manage it and make sure that it's all okay. It's not great, and it's not bad. It's just okay. And I knew if I were to honor the time of the sabbatical, and if I were to honor the gift that the church extended to me, and honor the Holy Spirit, and honor my wife, and honor my kids, I'm going to have to confront these issues. I'm going to have to wrestle with these issues, as I wouldn't have the convenience of work to distract me. And I had a hunch, and I knew what was unsettling inside of me. I just didn't want to look it in the eye. And it was my identity. I knew that I struggled with placing my worth and my value in what I do. That if what I do is successful, then people will love me. And if it's not successful, people will turn from me. That it's all wrapped up in my goodness, in my competency, in my morality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't want to go there. But I knew God was inviting me there. You see, back in the fall of 21, as I was having a time with the Lord, I felt like he was just saying to me, Brandon, you're like Jacob. And if you know the story of Jacob, you know that's not a compliment. I mean, just like the Hebrew name, it means liar, schemer, heel grabber, someone who is self-sufficient, who's trying to manipulate God in life to make it all work out to his own ends. It's like someone who cannot and will not trust other people, especially God, because he only trusts himself. 
And I knew the story well enough that the significant turning moment in Jacob's life was when he wrestled with God. And I knew the story enough that God dislocated his hip and the rest of his life was one with the limp. Yeah, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks, God. Have you been there? Have you ignored prayer because you knew what God wanted to deal with? Have you withheld intimacy and relationships because you were afraid of what people might find out or what you might have to confess? Were you trying to pretend to be someone that you're not? Have you been there? You see, this is something that I love about God that I learned the hard way. It's God's grace that invites us to wrestle with him. It's intimacy that he wants to wrestle with him. I used to think, and I know it was wrong, but I used to think that God does this because he's disappointed with me. And I would wrestle, like, no, he loves me, he's good. But like the deep operating system in my life was truly believing that God is not pleased with me. And that's why he's doing this, so that way he can keep pointing his finger at me. The past few days as I was praying through this passage in Genesis 32, I was reminded of a teaching that Jesus did in John 12, where he was saying to his disciples that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But it has to die in order for it to produce fruit. And he says, this is like kind of like how it is to follow him. It's like, if you're going to follow me, you must die to yourself in essence. And so he's kind of making this connection that our life is to be like his, where we allow the old to die, allow the old to be broken in order for the new to come. And all of a sudden it like just dawned on me. I was like, man, our life... In fact, our Christian life is a lot like a seed. So think about this for a moment because a seed contains the imprint. It contains the DNA of what it's eventually going to become. So like this acorn has the DNA of the tree. You were created in the image of God. There is a divine DNA, a divine imprint in your life. But we're also just like the seed and in our lives, by the way, we are raised. There's this outer shell, this outer casing that is there at one point. It's like the world we grew up in to protect our hearts, to make sure that we're safe and secure, where we trust things that we know are safe. But that old has to go, that old has to fall and be broken in order for that seed to sprout and to realize its full potential. If that outer casing of the seed is never broken, that seed will never realize its potential. So when Jesus says something like this, like if you're going to follow me, you must lose your life. This is the idea of that outer casing, that outer shell of that seed breaking apart so that the life of God, the divine DNA that he's caused to live inside of you can finally come to fruition. How does that happen? How do we get to those moments where that life, that old can be broken? I need us to understand that the potential of the seed can only be realized when that outer shell is broken. It's the same with your life. The old way of thinking, the old way of identifying, the old way of where we find values and our worth has to be broken and discovered only through the voice of God. That means we have to confront things. That means we have to confront circumstances in our life that are unpleasant, the ones that we try to sweep underneath the rug. 
And what we will discover this morning is that we're actually not confronting these circumstances. Even though we are, the real confrontation is with God. And we need to see that is God's grace. God leads us to these moments of confrontation because he's good. Because he loves us. And because he pursues us. And because he loves us, God wants to pick a fight with you this morning. What will you do? Will you run away from that? Or will you run towards God and wrestle with him? Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 32. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you, get used to cracking open this book. It's the greatest book you'll ever read in your life. If you have a phone, you can pull up an app. But like I always say, promise me, you will not do anything else besides the Bible. No tweeting, no hashtagging, no TikToking, none of that. Genesis 32, verses 1 through 3. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanim. I think that's how you pronounce that. Now, I need to provide a quick little context of the story of Jacob's life. When Jacob was born... He was seen coming out of the, like the, the womb as he was being born. He was grabbing the heel of his brother, brother Esau. And so that's how he got his name Jacob. His brother got the name Esau, which is like red or hairy, Chewbacca, just thinking of it that way. Right? So it's, it's just like kind of a, a bad name. And that name truly became his identity in a lot of ways. Like he was a heel grabber a schemer, a manipulator, self-reliant. But God already gave the promise that the younger will be the one who gets the blessing. He will be the one who gets to carry on the Abrahamic blessing. Not Esau, not, not the older. But as the story goes, we see that Jacob and his mom didn't trust that. So they took matters into their own hands and tried to manipulate and finagle God's blessings as they see, saw fit. And so one day Esau came home absolutely famished from a day of hunting. And Esau takes advantage of this moment. Esau comes and he sees Jacob making uh, food. And Esau's just like, I am famished to the point of death. Give me some of that food. Jacob, being such a conniver, like being really shrewd, goes, ooh, Older brother wants something from younger brother. I'm a younger brother. I get this. I did this all the time. We completely manipulate the circumstance because if older brother finally wants something, we're going to take advantage of that and get what we want. Nonetheless, he says, fine, I'll give you stew if you give me your birthright, which sounds like nothing to us, but in those days, that was a significant deal. A birthright meant you would get the double blessing of God. You would have the lineage. You'd be the, the head of the household. Like you would get double portion, double blessing. Esau completely despises his birthright, says, what point of a birthright is it if I'm going to die of hunger? Sure, here's the birthright. Give me some stew. So we already see this nature in Jacob as a schemer and manipulator. And then as Isaac is about to like, you know, die, he was going to give his blessing to Esau. And mom finds out and she's like, Jacob, come quick. Your father's about to give the blessing to your older brother Esau. But we want uh, that blessing to go to you. So dress like your brother Esau. Get some like fake fur or like some goat hair on yourself. And, and we're going to make you smell like game. We're going to make you smell like your brother. Your dad's blind. He won't know. So just go. Go. 
Isaac sees, here's one of the kids coming in. He's like, who is it, my son? And Jacob lies and says, it's Esau. And he steals the blessing. Esau finds out, well, he's not happy. He wants to murder his younger brother now. So Jacob's mom says, okay, let's flee. You're going to go to my brother's home. Jacob runs, meets God on the way. He goes to Laban. He struggles and schemes and works hard. He, gets, he himself gets manipulated by Laban. He walks out of this time with two wives, female servants, and a lot of flock, all this kind of stuff. And God says, now, go home. Now, what's fascinating was Jacob's mom said, Jacob, I will send for you when it's safe for you to come home. Either something changed in Esau's heart, or maybe he died, whatever. But when it's safe for you to come home, I will send for you. He never gets it. God comes and says, go home, Jacob. Go home. Jacob knows exactly what that means. He knows he's going to have to confront his past. He knows he's going to have to confront his brother. And he has no clue if his brother has a 20-year grudge or not. No clue. He can't sweep this one under the rug. I mean, he can completely disobey God and stay there, but he already knows the situation with Laban is a bad situation. So he goes home. Confrontation is awaiting him. And Jacob thinks at this moment, okay, he's thinking that this confrontation is with Esau. That's the circumstance that's awaiting him. But friends, that's not the circumstance. That's not the confrontation that's actually awaiting him. The confrontation that's awaiting him is with God. It's not with Esau. It's with God. What would you do in this moment if you were Jacob? Like, what would you do? Think about your life. If all of a sudden you felt God pressing upon you to confront something, do you run? Yeah, you run. But which direction do you run? You see, he goes back. Jacob is not a fool. He's very strategic. He's very wise in making sure the circumstances work out to his favor. He'd be good to have in a strategic meeting that's the kind of guy Jacob is. Look at verse 3. So he sends messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Sarah, the country of Edom, instructing his servants, say to my Lord Esau. That's fascinating. Let's flatter him. Let's butter him up. Let's soften him. Let's see if we can appease him. Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants, and I sent to tell my Lord in order that I would, may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob. And they're like, um, Jacob, we, we went. Esau's bringing 400 men, which is code language for Esau's bringing an army. Jacob's terrified. He doesn't have an army. It's like this circumstance has gotten far worse. It's like his worst imagination is like it's coming true. He doesn't know what to do. Even though God has already promised him, go home, I will be with you. The promise is going to go through you. Like all of that disappeared because now he's facing reality. This is my past. It's coming to meet me dead on. So in verse 7, he's greatly afraid and distressed. 
He divided the people who were with him in the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then at least the other one can escape. And he also understands that if he were to like bring these two camps and also bring gifts and sessions, it will slow him down. It would even hinder him. Because also he's going to have all of these people and all these gifts and all this flock around him. This is what the old life does. Let me explain. When we're about to confront these types of circumstances, we do oftentimes what Jacob does. You make your plans first. You scheme first. You stay up late at night on the hamster wheel of your mind, thinking through every single situation, everything, every single scenario. If I say this, this would happen. If I do this, this would happen. And what if this happens? What will I do then? And we start to think through all of those scenarios. We make our plans first. And then finally, after we settle on the best course of action, then we finally pray. Look at this. Because now he prays. Like the circumstance is so overwhelming, he's like, okay, I'm going to pray. And let's just be honest, that is oftentimes when we pray. It's when all of a sudden something seems so dire and so overwhelming where we can't control it anymore, we can't fix it anymore, then we're like, oh, God, by the way, hey, can you fix it? Verse 9, Jacob prays, oh, God of my father Abraham and Isaac, oh, God of my... Father of Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He's kind of like, God, you said this. Like, you, you told me that you would do good. Like, this isn't looking good. God, what's going on? And Jacob's first prayer that we have recorded on his way out to Laban saying, he was basically saying, God, if you bless me, if you do this, then I will do X, Y, and Z. He's kind of like saying, God, you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain. But at the same time, Jacob is starting to feel the weight of his choices. And there's like this beautiful crack in his outer shell. He's like starting to confess a little bit. I'm not worthy of least of all of the deeds of Staphat's love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for with only my staff across this Jordan. And now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me with the mother, with the children. Like this sounds like a good prayer. And there are parts of it that, is, that are good. There's parts of this that is really beautiful, but there's really a lot here where God's like, or Jacob's trying to manipulate God. He's like, God, bless my plan. Bless my effort. God, would you fix this? Bless me. Do good to me, God. He's recalling the blessing, the promise that God gave him, which is really good. But what Jacob doesn't know, because he's not believing it, and we know that by his actions, it was what he doesn't know is that God actually wants to give him this blessing. God wants to bless him. But he doesn't, God's not going to do it Jacob's way. He's not going to use Jacob's plan to do it. Are you okay with that? Because God wants to bless you his way. It reminds me of a proverb. Man makes his plans, but the Lord directs the steps. 
Jacob made plans, but God has completely different plan of how to bless him. And with, without realizing it, Jacob has begun to wrestle with God. Because the real confrontation isn't with Esau. It's with God. When I was on the sabbatical, I must have went through so many different seasons in four months. There was moments of just like intense wrestling with God. And then there were moments of just sweetness. And then moments of wrestling, moments of sweetness. And I knew that God wanted to do some work in my heart. I knew he wanted to fight with me and I didn't want to go there. Some of the things that he had me confront were specifically connected to my past. How I was raised, the world I grew up in, the struggles I had as a young kid, the drug addictions that was upon me when I was in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Realizing that I never felt safe or secure as a kid, and so I went out on my own to try to find it. I didn't trust anybody. I was constantly told as a young kid, I wish you were more like so-and-so. I wish you were better. I wish you were this. And so I started to believe this story that my value is only depend, or my value is found if I am like these other people, if I am better than what I really am. I never felt love for just who I was. Now, I'm not just speaking about my parents, but I'm talking about almost everybody in my life. So without realizing it, that outer shell that I felt like was the thing to protect my heart became my running operating system in my life. And so the best place for me to find value and worth and applause and acceptance from people is by what I do and how I live. And what I didn't want to confront was how this carried over until how I see myself as a pastor. If the church grows, people will see me better. And if the church shrinks, people will want a different pastor. And if I'm good, then this will happen. Wow, the giving was up. Man, I must be really good. Whoa, I got a lot of good emails. The sermon was awesome. People must really like me. Oh, there's a lot of complaints. People hate me. And I just felt psychotic. And I know, like my heart knows, no, God grows the church. God, this is so I'm constantly wrestling it, but I never wanted to stare at that issue, right? So I tried just to keep it safe, make sure it's just okay and it doesn't get out of whack and I do something stupid. But God wanted to radically change that. Because what I didn't understand was how I saw that carried home. Stress and anxiety would carry home. I would be physically present at home, but emotionally and mentally absent. There would be moments where my wife and I will be on a date, and she's like, I just don't feel like you're here. And I'd be like, what do you mean I'm not here? I'm right here. I'm right here. We're on the same couch. We're talking. We're watching a movie. We're good, right? Like, I would just try to keep things good. Check in, do the stuff. I mean, I kind of knew it wasn't good, but I didn't think it was bad. Sometimes I felt like my kids were in the way. I had to hear these things because I was so preoccupied with work because I'm like, man, if I could just fix this and everything would be good and this and this and this, and it just carried home. Now it create more plans and strategies how to appease and calm that anxiety. Like, okay, if this happened and that would be there, the grass is always greener on the other side, so if I could get this and I get this and this and this and this and all that kind of stuff, the more plans and more strategies you make, the more anxious you get. And God's like, Brandon... You're Jacob. You're Jacob. 
I know you want more of me. I know you want these things. I know you want to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. But you've got to wrestle with me now. I need you to see these things. This outer shell that's protecting the potential of life has to be broken. And the only way for that to be broken, Brandon, is if you confront me. Man, I'm telling you, that's a scary situation. But I'm also telling you, it is the most beautiful spot to be. How about you? Because I know in all of your lives, I don't know what it is exactly. I know there are circumstances in your life. Maybe it's things in your past. Maybe it's things in your present that you are purposely avoiding. What will you do? Because the Holy Spirit is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. He wants all of your heart because he's good. And he knows that it's for your good for this to happen. Whose idea was it for Jacob to go home? Whose idea was it for Jacob to eventually wrestle with God? If it's God's, then what does that say about God's character? Well, it depends on what you believe to be true about him. I believe, because scriptures teach this, and I know you do too, that the Holy Spirit can only lead to life. That if God is good, then everything God does is good. God is loving. That means everything that God does is loving. And that's why God is confronting Jacob in this moment. Friends, I'm going to say something a little bit bold because I just want to lean in a little bit. Some of you have never gotten past the point of your Christianity where there's more than just Sunday morning. And you feel like Sunday morning is your way to appease God. Hey, God, I went to church. We're good. Don't ask anymore. Like there's some people who call those types of Christians practical atheists, which is a heavy term if you think about it. It's like we, we believe in God, but the way we live is, is kind of basically atheistic because we don't see God involved in our daily life. But I will do this and this and this just to be like, check, we're good. Don't ask any more of me. But really, uh, let's just be honest, it's a trust issue. We just don't want to relinquish that. We don't want that outer shell to fall and to be broken because we feel pretty good about what it's been. Some of you have not grown spiritually where you experience the life that scriptures teach because you just simply refuse to confront these circumstances. You refuse to confront God in these things. You're choosing to live in denial of some realities. You're choosing to sweep things under the rug. Or maybe there's just a lot of misplaced priorities in your life. Husbands, I'm going to just step over here for a second. I want to speak to you husbands. Uh, I'm totally guilty of this, as I saw. You never compromise your marriage for the sake of being busy in your job. Your identity is not connected to that, how much you make. I know sometimes there's temptations to stay late at work because you don't want to go home. 
But I want you to understand, like, scriptures teach this. Like, truly, it does. Go to First Peter, you'll see it. And it's like, husbands, honor or love your wives for the sake of your prayers. Because if you don't, God won't hear them. So maybe for you, what you need to confront is your misplaced priorities at home. Can I say a little bit more? I'm just going, whatever. My identity's not anymore on this. Our culture needs, guys, listen, our culture needs you to step up and to be godly men. Stop being passive. Fight these things, wrestle with these things. God wants more. I don't know what the circumstances in your life that you're avoiding, but I'm just telling you, God wants you to confront these things because God's leading you to confront these things. It's because of his grace. Jacob made his plans. God had different plans. True story. Going into sabbatical, I made my plans. But God had different plans. And that meant I had to cancel flights, change things. And I had the opportunity to choose to fight it or surrender to it. And praise God, I chose to surrender to it. Verse 21. So the present passed on at him. Jacob's now sent off the two camps and a bunch of gifts and things to slow down Esau. The present passed on ahead of him, and he, he himself stayed that night. That same night he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Have you ever had a night like that? Where it's just you and your thoughts. You and your anxiousness. And it's, it's hard. It's exhausting. You don't feel peace, fear. You're on that proverbial hamster wheel. You're starting to see things, and it's very uncomfortable. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I want you to picture this, okay? I'm a total wuss when it comes to being out in the woods by myself at night, because every sound I hear, I believe Bigfoot is around the tree. Like, I'm just like, <sighs> and then you start to like imagine you're seeing things. Like Jacob is by himself, so his like, and his anxiety is already at like level 10. And so he's there, all of a sudden he just hears this, you can just hear the brustling of the leaves. And you can almost imagine like Jacob looking in the moonlight, seeing this shadowy figure walking there. And he's just going to, he's just one of Esau's men. And Jacob's 97 years old. So he's not real nimble. He's not real athletic like he used to be. So he doesn't have the ability just to get up and run away. And as he's watching, they just get closer and closer. And next thing you know, they're like face to face, eye to eye. And Jacob doesn't know what's going to happen, but he sees this guy, like, I don't know why I picture this. He just, this other guy's just, just like, or like, you know, Morpheus in Matrix. Yes, I watched Matrix, you know, that thing. And Jacob's like, okay. I can imagine Jacob's pulse increasing, his breathing getting heavy. 97 years old. I wrestle with my kids for 30 minutes and I'm a sweaty mess. I'm tired. I'm only 41. This was a six to seven hour wrestling match. Going at it, and we know the story. We know that this isn't some stranger. This isn't one of Esau's men. This is God himself wrestling with Jacob. And you should be asking the question, what gives? How does a 97-year-old handle God like this? 
Frustration, blood, sweat, dirt, pain, burning, muscles, thirst, and exhaustion. This is a symbolic picture of the life of Jacob. I am going to fight to the end. I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to yield. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep striving. I'm going to keep gritting it out. And that, I'm telling you, that's exactly what I experienced in my sabbatical. There were moments where God was confronting me. I mean, there were moments, and I'm not, being ex- I'm not exaggerating, where I just felt like deep, dark depression, mass anxiety. And God's like, come on, keep going, keep going. And I was just like, I didn't want to. And I didn't want to relent. I didn't want to surrender. I didn't want to confront certain things. And just like this story, This happens in our own life. 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he just simply touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, which we all say, ouch, as he wrestled with him. Like, just like out of nowhere, after six and seven hours of wrestling, to which Jacob probably thought, I got this guy. God's just like, who's stronger, right? Like, what is this about? What's the deal? I mean, God made himself weak so that Jacob would contend with him. Like, he wanted Jacob to wrestle. He wanted Jacob to get to this moment where he can finally go, you ready? Are you ready to surrender? This is a picture of Jacob's spirit being stubborn of being unwilling to submit. Only when he is weakened by God, only when he's shown to be vulnerable, does he yield. God will never, ever, ever destroy us. He will invite us in to wrestle with him. But if we're open to it, this is what's always going to happen. He's always going to get to this point where he just dislocates our pride from our life. He will dislocate the, self, um, the self-reliance that we have. He will dislocate the arrogance and the insecurity that we have put on ourselves. Church, I believe that this was the moment that God was waiting for in Jacob's life all along. And I believe this is the moment that he's waiting for in your life. You wrestle with God to the moment where you're finally willing to yield to him, to give up your own strength and your own ways to say, God, I surrender, I trust you, I need you, and you alone. Because now Jacob is no longer wrestling with this man. He can't. He doesn't have the strength. His hip is dislocated. I had a friend whose hip was dislocated, and he told me it was probably the most excruciating thing he's ever had happen in his life. He even showed me a picture. All Jacob can do at this moment is cling to to God, to hang on for dear life. And by this simple move, Jacob knows that he's not wrestling with any mere man. He hangs on for dear life. I will not let go unless you bless me. Verse 26, then he said, let me go for the day is broken. And God's like, hey, let me go. Jacob's like, no, no, I can't face Esau like this. I can't face this circumstance like this. I can't live life like this anymore. I need you. 
I'm going to hang on to you. I'm desperate for you. I need this blessing. Bless me. I will not let go until you do. And this blessing is not a material blessing, church. This is a blessing of relationship. He's hanging on. I need you. God, I can't do this anymore. Something broke in Jacob. Because now he's asking for the blessing. Not in pride. Not in self-reliance. But in brokenness. Jacob asked for the blessing previously. But he was asking for God to bless him through his plans and his ways and his strategies and his efforts. But God's like, no. This is when we begin to understand what it means to have life to the full. This is when that outer shell falls to the ground and is broken. That's when we start to understand the fullness of life that we have in Jesus. You see, the real confrontation for Jacob wasn't with Esau. It was with God. It's beautiful. And then something fascinating happens. Verse 27. And God said to him, and he said to him, what is your name? Names carry significant meaning and weights in scriptures, not like they do today. When this man was asking Jacob this question, what is your name? What he's asking is, confess. Confess to me who you think you are. Admit it. Face the reality. Jacob says, I'm Jacob. I'm the schemer. I'm the deceiver. I'm the one who doesn't trust you. You see, when we confront God in these wrestling match, what he does is he makes us confront who we think we are. And that's hard. Because that means we have to let go of certain areas where we have built up walls in our life to protect us out of fear, pride, insecurity. And God's like, just confess. I'm Jacob. I don't trust you. I trust myself. And I love what God does. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob's like, well, tell me your name. Why are you asking my name? And then he blessed him. And Jacob, <laughs> he realizes that he saw the face of God and he survived. Oh, that is God's grace. I love this name change. You're no longer Jacob. That's your old identity. That's how you lived. That's how you protected yourself. That's how you got ahead. But now I call you Israel. He could have called him anything. He could have called him beloved, my boy. He could have called him anything, but he said, Israel. You wrestled with God and with men and prevailed. Or some scholars would actually say it's the opposite where God has wrestled with us and has prevailed. They're both true. Jacob prevailed because he finally surrendered. And God prevailed because that's the moment he wants Jacob to get to. That's the moment he wants you and I to be at. 
Verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Walking in utter weakness, limping to meet Esau and his 400 people. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on, his, his, on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. The sun rose upon him. Think about the symbolism. What does the sun reveal? The sun reveals a stooped over, bleeding, sweaty, bruised man in torn and muddy clothes walking with a substantial limp wincing at every step, moving towards the promised land. And every step he takes is a step closer to confronting Israel, the mark of God's grace. Paul said, did he not, in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient, and that your strength is actually your weakness? And we're like, well, that's not triumphant. That looks painful. Sometimes God's love is painful. But that's where the blessing is. So what can you do to take your next steps? And I'm just going to share these real quick with you. Because they're not deep. They're just choices that you have to make. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Will you run towards God run towards the fight, or run away. I want you to face it. Face the circumstance. Face whatever it is that is confronting you and wrestle with God in it. And as you do, I want you to push through it. Persist in prayer in it. Hang on. Get to the point where God makes you surrender where you yield to his ways and his plans and give up yours. And as you do, instead of seeing your weakness as, as a detriment, rejoice in the limp. Rejoice in the limp. Because now you're learning how to cling to him instead of fighting him. God never, ever promised Jacob that everything is going to go smooth. He promised Jacob that his presence would be with him. God has never promised us that everything in our life is going to go smooth and easy. But he did promise us his presence. And that's the greatest blessing, is the relationship. Wrestling with God is intimacy with God. He's not there to guilt you. He's not there to shame you or to let you know how bad you are. He's doing it because he loves you. Because he wants you to confront your circumstances. He wants you to confront who you think you are so that he can change you. The God of Jacob. Think about that for a moment. It's one of the most popular names of our God. The God of the liar. The God of the schemer. The God of the self-confident. The God of Jacob. Changes the name to Israel wrestles with God and overcomes. God withholds his strength so that way we can contend with him. Let him prevail over you. Get to that place of surrender. Lord, I ask that your spirit would 
work in our hearts, speak to us. And Lord, and that's why we prayed earlier that it would be your spirit that would do the convicting. Because sometimes our own guilt and our shame complexes can put on false conviction. But Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that. Lord, show us areas in our life where we fight you. Show us areas in our lives where we don't trust you. Areas in our life that we're afraid to confront. Lord, help us to see grace in it. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to move towards you in it. And God, we say by faith that you will be victorious over it. So God, I ask that you would use the lyrics of this last song just to do a work in our heart. Would you minister to us? Lead us to your throne because it's there where we find grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you.